0: We have been working ever so slowly through Matthew's gospel, and we come to the ninth chapter, the first eight verses. Matthew chapter nine, the first eight verses. I find it a wonderful thing after our brother Vince Strawbridge having gone to heaven this past week that we come to this passage in which Jesus is dealing with a paralytic, which certainly was not my plan, but it's almost as if the Lord would give us an additional passage with comfort. As we come to this text, let us pray. Our Father, we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus that in your sovereign grace and mercy you will open this text to us fully and freely, illumine the page that we may see Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel, and that we may rejoice in the forgiveness of sins as well as in the healing of the body. We pray that your people will receive encouragement and that the Spirit of God will grant us persevering grace and that the lost among us may hear the gospel and be saved. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, who had given such authority to men. The title of the sermon this morning is arresting, if you think about it. The title of the sermon is Jesus Forgives a Paralytic. You might have expected Jesus heals a paralytic, and indeed, he does heal the paralytic, as we have just read. But the healing is, as R.T. France has pointed out, a subplot. It is visible proof of the invisible authority of Jesus, and we've been seeing the authority of Jesus in his teaching and, of course, in these miracles that have preceded this one as we have surveyed Matthew's gospel together. As we come to this text this morning, it deepens our understanding of who Jesus is, not only as the one who can heal, not only the one who can raise the dead, but the one who can actually forgive the sins of sinners. And it also introduces an element of controversy in Jesus' ministry that begins to grow as Matthew continues continues to tell us about the unfolding ministry of Jesus. The first thing that we see then as we come to this text is that a paralytic is brought to Jesus. Let's read again verses 1 and portion of 2. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now recall that he has just healed the two demoniacs And now he is coming back over from the Gadarene, the primarily Gentile region, back into Jewish country. And Behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now, we don't know much about this paralytic. If we were to go to Mark, we would find out more, but we're looking at Matthew and trying to determine his distinctive emphasis. We know that he was a paralytic, we knew that that, um, he couldn't run and play ball with his with his children if he had some. Maybe he was quadriplegic. A quadriplegic cannot embrace his wife, take her out for her birthday, or do something special to surprise her. Perhaps this man... Well, we've had an example of this in our own congregation for 13 years. We know what this means. There were no wheelchairs in those days or ambulances, and so others bring him to Jesus. And the text tells us that he's brought in faith. Cripples. (sighs) We'll make progress. Cripples were socially stigmatized in Jesus' day. They were neglected by society. This man was probably ridiculed. His heart was cheerless. He was burdened within in his conscience. He was oppressed without by others. This is a very, very sad situation. He probably associated his paralysis with his own personal sin. This was typical of the Jews. And it may have indeed been due to his personal sin, as some commentators think. The text says, when Jesus saw their faith, not the faith of the man, but those who brought the man to them, they were aggressive. Jesus saw their hearts. God's gift of faith was there. The Lord had given it in his sovereignty. We see this word faith. The word faith, of course, is used in many sentimental ways in our culture. But faith is a theme that's been developing along the way in Matthew's gospel. For example, in chapter 8, verse 10. We read about the faith of the centurion. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Or you might remember when he calmed the storm, that he said to his disciples, O you of little faith. And so this, again, is a theme that is growing in Matthew's gospel. It's important for us to understand that in the New Testament, faith is always reliance upon a person. I remember somewhere J. Gresham Machen giving an illustration regarding money. He has money to invest. And as he is investing that money, someone says to him, well, if you're going to invest that, what do you know about the person? Well, I don't know much about him, he said. I know that he's a charlatan. I know that he's misapplied a lot of people's money. I know that he has sold stock that hasn't been worth much. But then I'm going to have faith in the man. It doesn't matter what I know about him. You can see immediately that this distinction between knowledge and faith is ridiculous And that someone thinking that way about his money probably needs a guardian. Well, many people have this idea about faith. Faith in what? Faith in whom? Well, it's just faith. When we come to Jesus, we must know something about him. Indeed, we know a great deal about him. We know that he's reliable. We know that he is alive. We know that his atonement is infinitely valuable. We know that he can save us and that he can touch our lives. We know a great deal about Jesus. And so these men have seen him heal the sick, perhaps heard his teaching. They know a great deal about him, and they have faith, and they bring this paralytic. So today, the prayers of faith continue to benefit others. How many men or women, husbands or wives, have come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will say, I never thought I would be there, but my wife, she prayed faithfully for me. My husband, he believed for me. So here is this man, face to face with Jesus, the one that the paralytic longed to see undoubtedly, will he be disappointed? Will he be healed? Well, the next thing that you expect is that Jesus will heal the man. Suppose this is the first time you've ever read Matthew's gospel. You've been reading the healing ministry of Jesus. You expect that the next thing you're going to see as you read this text is that this man is healed, but that's not what we find. The second thing we see in the text is that Jesus forgives the paralytic. We read on in verse 2. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He uses the word technon. It can mean son or daughter. Here, of course, it's son because it's a man, but it's affectionate, loving, reassuring address. He's essentially saying, take heart, take heart. Coming to Jesus not only represented the paralytic's desire to be healed, but also represented his desire to be forgiven. Maybe the paralytic thought, we've seen that he can heal bodies, maybe he also can heal hearts. Do you think he can? And so his friends brought him, and Jesus forgave him his sins in sovereign authority. Now, sickness and paralysis, these things are the result of sin. There's an organic connection between sin and suffering. The Jews were right about that. They were wrong to think that there was necessarily a connection between someone's personal sin and sickness or ill health or paralysis or whatever it may have been. But they were right that there was an organic connection between sin and suffering. All sickness and bodily degeneration is the result of the fall of Adam. The fall of all mankind in our first parent, Adam. And Jesus does not deal only with symptoms. Jesus has come into the world to deal with root causes. Not just sickness, not just paralysis, but with the sin that indwells the human heart. There would be no sickness in this world had there been no sin in the world. Do you suppose that the man and his friends were disappointed when Jesus said to him, Not be healed, not take up your mat and walk? But when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, do you think they were disappointed? What about you? Again, imagine you're reading this for the first time. Are you disappointed that Jesus didn't say, take up your mat and walk? What if Jesus had forgiven him and left him in his paralysis? What would you have thought of that? Would Jesus have still done the best and the good thing? I think that the man must have been aware of his need. That forgiveness was his greatest need. That forgiveness of sins was the much greater need than the healing of this man's broken body. I think he must have been a very depressed and unhappy man whose conscience was defiled. And so when Jesus says, take heart, your sins are forgiven, he was thrilled. I was also glad when I went to D.A. Carson to find that he agreed with me. (laughs) Dr. Carson says, But that Jesus should tell this paralytic to take heart from his words strongly suggests that this man's paralysis was the direct result of a specific sin. And the man knew it and labored under terrible pangs of guilt. Jesus' gentle take heart, son, as a preface to his, your sins are forgiven, would have been unbearably cruel if the man was aware of no guilt and wanted only to be free of paralysis. But if Profound guilt compounded the unutterable weakness than Jesus' opening words offered the brightest hope. They showed Jesus really understood the man's condition and was dealing with the deepest hurt. And if the paralysis and some specific sin were connected, then Jesus' words dealing with sin brought hope that the physical ailment would also be remedied. Now let me ask you this question. Do you really believe Do we really believe that this man's greatest need in this text is the forgiveness of sins? Remember again in life what he could not do. Remember that he could not walk and run and play and dance and remember what he could not do in life. Do you believe that your greatest need in life, your greatest need in life, is the forgiveness of your awful sins? Jesus understands our condition better than we do he knows what this man's greatest need is and he knows that our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins i think here we learn a simple but important point without which we will not understand the christian faith i think we're very confused in the church today about what our priorities should be what the church is really called to be and what the church is really called to do and it's important that we address physical needs. If you hear otherwise, you're hearing me wrongly. It is important that we address physical needs. You know that. I stress that. It's important. But that is not the gospel. Meeting physical needs is not the gospel. It well may be the fruit of the gospel in our lives, but it is not the gospel itself. The need of salvation from sin is the far greater need than meeting the physical needs of sinners. The gospel is what God has done to save us from our sins through the work of Jesus Christ on his cross and in his resurrection. The healing miracles of Jesus were primarily confirmations of his message. And his message was the message of the Son of God who has come to forgive sinners of their sins. We're very confused about these things. I commend to you a sermon by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I could find the text and the title for you easily enough. But I recall Dr. Lloyd-Jones addressing this issue of the church and how confused we are about our priorities, how we tend to place the physical over the spiritual, and how we tend to think in these ways and forget that our basic need is the forgiveness of sins. And Dr. Lloyd-Jones said three things. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said that it is wrong for us to put man before God It is wrong for us to put the body before the soul. Not because the body is unimportant, but because we're not materialists. And it is wrong for us to put time before eternity. And if we get that wrong, the church will not function properly. We will forget that our first call is to preach to sinners salvation in Christ's name. That is the first call of the church, and that is the first call of the Christian to know that our greatest need is the forgiveness of sins. Now, if we only realized what it cost the Lord to make this statement to this man, your sins are forgiven, because God cannot just forgive sins. I say it reverently, but he cannot. He cannot. There must be an atonement. There must be the shed blood of Christ. There must be the cross if sins are to be forgiven. And when Jesus says to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, he knows that it will cost him the sacrifice of his own life on the cross that it be so. That in forgiving this man, Jesus is anticipating the cross upon which all the forgiveness of sins depends both forgiveness before and after the cross. And all who are forgiven before the cross are forgiven in in anticipation of the cross. And all who are forgiven after the cross are forgiven on the basis of the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. And so understanding this brings our priorities into sync with the Lord's priorities. It enables us to realize that forgiveness of sins is our greatest need. Again, do you believe that? Pastor McDonald, some time ago, was teaching a series on the healing miracles of Jesus. And so he sat down with our brother, Vince Strawberry Jr. He knew how he would answer this question, but he wanted to tell the young people. And he said, Vince, tell me, would you rather that the Lord say to you, your sins are forgiven, or would you rather that the Lord say to you, be healed of your paralysis? Oh, Jeff, he said. The answer is clear, that my sins be forgiven. That's my real need. Do you see that? Only the Holy Spirit can teach you and me the right answer to that question. I think the man was thrilled that at that moment his sins were forgiven, his guilt was removed, he had a right relationship with God. Some here remember when you first came to know the Lord Jesus and your sins were forgiven. We say it in the creed every Sunday, I believe the forgiveness of sins. You will feel no disappointment when Jesus says to you, your sins are forgiven. And when you see that you are unholy and that you need that one thing, forgiveness, all else pales by comparison. When a man knows he's a sinner, nothing but pardon can satisfy him. Nothing else can make him content. When a man is on death row, knowing that the execution is imminent, what will calm him but pardon? You know these hymn lines? Sin, like a venomous disease, infects our vital blood. The only balm is sovereign grace and the physician God. Our great need is forgiveness third thing we see in this text is that Jesus' claim brings controversy. Verse 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. And Jesus, knowing their hearts, then he responds, This man, you see, they speak contemptuously of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' pardon of the paralytic angers the scribes. They regarded his words as blasphemous. Why are they angry? The verb is blaspheming usually means to slander. In this case, they are considering that Jesus is slandering God. They think that Jesus is bringing God down, that he is usurping his prerogative. Mark's gospel makes it plain. They believe that only God can forgive sins, and so they believe that Jesus is blaspheming because they do not believe that he is God. Now, the propositional statement is correct. Only God can forgive sinners. And Matthew wants you to see that the one who exercises divine authority must himself be divine, that God became man, that the incarnate Lord Jesus did not bring God down and denigrate God. He is God who came down in order to forgive sinners like us. This is his amazing love and his condescension. And so the Bible teaches consistently that only God can forgive sins. Isaiah forty three twenty five, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Isaiah forty four, twenty two, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. The scribes were right to want to uphold the sanctity of God's character. They are faulted because they refuse to recognize who Jesus is. And in the New Testament, failure to recognize who Jesus is is consistently consistently represented as a moral failing, a moral issue, a matter of the disposition of the heart. Now, this will lead to the crucifixion of Jesus. Had he come with a message be good, no one would have cared. Had he come with a philosophy, no one would have wouldn't have mattered. Jesus was crucified from the human point of view because he taught sovereign grace, because he taught the forgiveness of sins, because he is grace. How does your heart respond to the message of grace? Does your heart recoil from grace? Who are you to say that I'm a helpless sinner? Or do you say I'm utterly alienated and hopelessly lost? And so it causes controversy. And the controversy is theological to the core. They're determined that God cannot come to them. They are determined to live by their own merit and their own works. But Jesus is saying to them, no, you can't live that way. There are two antithetical methods of salvation at work here. The one by works, the other by grace. They can't be mixed and they cannot be mingled. And so there's controversy. Listen, true Christianity will never please the world we shouldn't even try. True Christianity is an insult to proud sinners. To attempt to make it palatable is conformity to the world. The Bible says that we must bear Christ's reproach and preach the offense of the cross. And so the controversy is all because Jesus came as a God of grace to forgive sins, ultimately by the blood of his own cross. That offense remains, and that offense we must not attempt as a church to get out from under, but we should put it front and center, or we are not being consistent with the gospel of Jesus our Lord. And Yes, this controversy leads to Jesus' crucifixion, but we also know that there's a greater one at work through the sin of men in order to bring his own son to the cross so that in his divine providence his own wrath might be poured out upon Jesus in our place so the scribes saw no need for the forgiveness of their sins, because they thought that they were righteous. But now, we see fourthly, that Jesus demonstrates who he is. And so we read in verse 4, but, Jesus knowing their thoughts said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and went home. And so in verse 4, Jesus knows their thoughts. When God looks at our hearts, what does he see? He sees our hearts. And then he answers with this interesting question in verse 5. Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? Now that's a reflective question. What do you think? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Which is easier? What do you think? Well, it is easier to say your sins are forgiven. But which is easier to do? To forgive or to heal? Well, it's easier to heal. Why? Because forgiveness of sins requires incarnation and atonement. It requires the cross. And to forgive is done on the value of the cross. Which is easier? He wants them to reflect and he wants us to reflect. He wants us to think. Which brings the uniqueness of Jesus to the fore? Which is easier? And so now he says what the religious leaders would consider to be the more difficult. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. To heal the paralytic is the sign that he can forgive sin. And when Jesus says here, The Son of Man, did you see that? Verse 6, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. You remember the book of Daniel, the 7th chapter. Turn there, if you will. We find this reference to the Son of Man and to the Ancient of Days. As we come to Daniel 7, we find the Ancient of Days who took his seat among the thrones. And then when we finally come to verse 13 of Daniel 7, we read of another figure. In Daniel seven thirteen and following. Daniel says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, that's the expression, "the son, a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him, and to him, that is to the son of man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus is saying to them, I am that divine figure of Daniel chapter 7. And when you see this healing, and when you know that I have forgiven this man's sins, you need to understand that even though there are others who could perform miracles, Moses, Elijah, Elisha, none of them could say your sins are forgiven. I only can do that. Because the Son of Man, who shares the throne with the Ancient of Days, is now in your midst. I'm here now. And He can forgive sins. And so we see the response in verse 8. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. The response? The man, he rose and went home, a testimony not only to healing, but to the forgiveness of sins the crowd, they were filled with fear, Fabeo, fear. We ought to fear the one who has the authority to forgive our sins. The kind of fear mentioned here is reverential awe, a recognition that they were in the presence of someone truly great, even if they didn't yet understand that he was divine. It's, a, it's an expression used again in Matthew 28 of the women at the empty tomb. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And this is a missing note today. Reverential awe, reverential fear. We've lost it in worship. We've lost it in our personal walk. We've lost it in the Christian life. We've lost it in theology. But this sense of fear is a part of a holy life. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. The fear of God. We are also told in verse 8 that they glorified God. That God would give, give authority like this to men who exercises authority to forgive sins They're beginning to understand. They're just beginning to see what the scribes did not see, who he was. And if they could have read the remainder of Matthew's gospel, as we can, and the remainder of the Bible, then they would know what we know, that every healing in the gospels is an anticipation of the coming day when we will say, I sin not, as well as saying... I am not sick. The healing ministry of Jesus points to the resurrection. I who forgive sins will right all wrongs and restore this fallen world. And not only are your sins forgiven, but your bodies will be perfectly restored in resurrection. That's what every healing ministry of Jesus says. And yes, the one who forgives paralytics also in his own time and in his own way, if not before, in the resurrection at the last day, heals the paralytics among his people as well. This is amazing, isn't it? And it's wonderful. All because he came to forgive sins. And he still forgives sins, people of God. This is the most distinctive characteristic message of the Christian faith, that God forgives sins through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Never, never tire of hearing God forgives through Jesus Christ and his cross my sins. Know it, know it more and more, deeper and deeper. You never mature beyond the cross, never mature beyond this message, never. Have you, do you hear him say to you, son, daughter, take heart, your sins are forgiven. Are your sins forgiven? Are they forgiven? Multitudes have been pardoned in Jesus' blood. If you could see into heaven right now and ask, they would tell you, we have washed our robes and the blood of the Lamb. But you say, I've cursed God. Believe in Jesus and you are saved. You say, I've mistreated my wife. Believe in Christ and He will save you from that. I have gone the way of the world. Believe in Christ and He will cleanse you of your sins. You say, I have lived full tilt in immorality. Believe in Christ and He will cleanse you from your sin. You say, I have disobeyed and manipulated my parents. Believe in Christ and He will cleanse you from your sins. Believe, believe, don't trifle. We're talking about sin and guilt and death and judgment and hell. And the only way and the only one. Who can forgive you of your sins? Don't trifle because Jesus has come into this world, no matter how vile your sins may be, to deal with sinners' sins. Jesus has come to treat incurables. Those who come to the conclusion, I cannot save myself, I cannot help myself, I cannot, through my works, my efforts, my morality, my philosophy, save myself. Jesus has come to treat, to heal, to forgive incurables. Now, At the end of our service, we're going to sing that great hymn, Great God of Wonders. Wonders, of course, means miracles, doesn't it? Great God of miracles. But that great hymn also reminds us that the most marvelous thing the Lord does for his people is to forgive us our sins. Greater than any miracle that he has performed, he forgives his people our sins. And so listen as I recite the words, and listen for a couple of verses that have been removed from the hymnal that should never have been, and we need to put them back someday. Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine, but the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled, shine, crimes of such horror to forgive, such guilty, daring worms to spare. This is thy grand prerogative, and none shall in the honor share. Angels and men, resign your claim to pity, mercy, love, and grace. These glories crown Jehovah's name with an incomparable glaze. In wonder lost, with trembling joy, we take the pardon of our God. Pardon for crimes of deepest dye. A pardon bought with Jesus' blood. Oh, may this strange, this matchless grace, this godlike miracle of love, fill the whole earth with grateful praise and all the angelic choirs above. Who is a pardoning God like thee? Or who has grace so rich, so free? Jesus forgave the paralytic. Jesus forgives sinners like you and me, our awful, awful, awful sins. Praise be to his name.